A History of Live Sound with Chris Snow. Imagine you've just bought a bankrupt company that makes mixing desks. Actually, they make the world's most expensive mixing desk. And if we're being pedantic, they haven't actually got one working yet. Where do you start? And where are you trying to end up? In previous episodes, we have heard about mixing Led Zeppelin and starting Soundcraft. In part three of my interview with Phil Dudridge of Focusrite, he explains how he took an analogue company into the digital age by saying yes to some unusual ideas. Where we left it last time was you'd just taken over Focusrite and were fixing the mixing desks that were in situ but maybe not quite functional yet to keep the good name of the company up. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I think buying Focusrite was... A, a rash decision taken in a hurry out of necessity because when you're dealing with insolvency practitioners you just have to make your mind up make your offer and if you find you win the deal i guess you could then change your mind but uh it's not quite like an auction house where you probably can't change your mind but uh no it was it was a, an interesting moment of yeah are we going to really do this you know the challenge was then to take a basket of shite and uh, uh, and turn it into a business because that's really what it was the guy that I did this with was called John Strudwick he had worked for Soundcraft and was at that time trying to start a software business rather unsuccessfully and this opportunity arose, and he and I went up to see Rupert Neve and um, and the insolvency practitioner and had a look at what there was to buy. And there really wasn't a lot because the company owned nothing in terms of its facilities. Everything was rented or leased. There were some half-built consoles, and the people who had been building them had just gone in every other every direction you know there there wasn't a company or a going concern to buy so what there Mm. was to buy was the brand and the ip the designs and so on fortunately all the outboard products were being produced outside yeah by subcontractors so it was a relatively easy task to get that restarted and give us some cash flow from day one or almost day one anyway and then we had to decide what to do with the consoles, and we really studied what you know it was taking to even get those two consoles at Master Rock and Electric Lady operational. And we realised that that really was not a good foundation for the business. They'd been over-designed, and as it turned out, not very reliable. Constant. I mean, they kept maintenance engineers employed for the life of the console. Um, <laughs> but uh, the first thing was to get them into a serviceable condition, and we paid for the maintenance engineer at Electric Lady for about six months, paid his salary, yeah, while we were figuring out whether we are going to be in the console business at all. Mm. And uh, we decided that a, a simpler desk would be the thing to do, something that was based around the ISA 110, uh, input module which was a mic pre and eq module and that was the sort of basic mm-hmm. building block of the whole console 
so we had to design everything else. Um, we put a team together, and I mean, I, I look back on it now, and I'm astonished what we were able to achieve in a year with a handful of people. So I think I said probably last time that it's something which, with all the resources we have today, I don't think Focus Right could do today because we do things <laughs> properly now and it takes a lot longer. <laughs> um, but I'm very proud of the fact that consoles that we built uh, back then, in some cases, are still fully operational. In the case of one in Los Angeles, it's still in the original studio, uh, which used to be called Ocean Way. Can't remember what it's called. Oh, is that the Jack Joseph Puig? Puig. Yeah, uh. and the one that we sold to um, Bob Studios in South Africa has been relatively recently re-imported into the States, or not re-imported, but imported into the States, and is going to be installed in a brand new studio near Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, brilliant! So uh, that's been totally refurbished in Las Vegas by a company that does that kind of work, Thermal Relief. And it's going into a studio, the name of which has escaped me. Uh. <laughs> so every now and again, does someone phone up the office and say, oh, hello, um, do you have any schematics for... And and you sort of have to dig in the in the cupboard and find the, the 20-year-old folder. Yeah, that does happen. Um, and... I think we've been able to help quite a bit, but I think the data hasn't been uh, as well conserved as it might have been. Platinum Underground Studios in Mesa, Arizona. Um, oh, lovely. That's where... That'll be warm. ...the box console's going to. Um, and Brilliant. it is so called because the original studio is underground. They literally, when they built it, dug a hole and built the studio and put a top on it at ground level and this console is going into a new studio that's being built up from ground level so it won't be platinum underground anymore it'll be platinum overground i suppose um but uh, yeah so it's going to get a, another life been invested in i mean it's cost the guy who bought it a lot of money a to buy it b to get it imported and c to get it refurbished i think it's going to cost him half a million dollars by the time he's finished which is cheaper than it was when it was brand new. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bargain then. Yes, a bargain. Whilst you know SSL and Neve are still making large format desks, it it does seem like that there was a sort of period in the eighties where everything was getting bigger and faster and better, and it sort of almost reached this pinnacle around around the time of Rupert Neve building the. The focus right desk, but it was almost like he just tried a bit too hard and di didn't quite manage to to make it. Yeah, uh, it, it was a shame that he was persuaded every time they sold another console. This was before building any of them. They sold about six, uh, and each client that came along contributed to the specification. So they put more and more ah. features into the into the input strip and into the channel strip. And it just got longer and longer. I mean, it was so deep that you couldn't actually reach the the input trim at the top of the module <laughs> without standing on a box. You know, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> so the Focusrite Studio console, which is what we called the new one, was uh, shorter and it was, you know, more reasonable depth to operate the console. 
The one that Rupert designed, uh, just out of interest, was uh, called the Forte console, and there were just two of them built, as I say. Is that so? Here's a random question, which has always intrigued me: is that obviously the the Focusrite logo is a, a double F, as in Fortissimo, or yes, in, and obviously there was the Focusrite Forte. So was, was it FF? What what led to the double F? Do you know, um, or was that? Bef- did you inherit that? Well, we inherited that from Rupert, and uh, there were various various explanations. One was it stood for Focusrite first, or Focusrite Forte, and there was another. I can't remember. What, I got various explanations from different people. I mean, we maintained that that logo for quite a long time, but we haven't used it now for probably twenty years. Just quietly phased it out. <laughs> so you now had a business which sold a working desk that that I assume was hopefully profitable or semi-profitable. But at that time, we was there then also the markets opening up for just having the individual prees. Well, that had, it, that had been. Did, quite did that a, happen at the same time? Well, it had been quite a good business for Focusrite before they produced the first Forte console. That had been the bread and butter of the business, producing uh, mic pre's, EQs in different formats. There were vertical modules that went into a rack. They had four channel racks and eight channel racks. And uh, sort of precursor to the 500 series, if you like, but rather larger modules than the 500. And yeah, they did very well. And, and if Rupert had stuck to that business rather than getting back into consoles so soon then uh, you know he, his business may well have survived and prospered under his ownership i think you know people were beating a path to his door saying oh go on rupert build us another console we don't like what uh, ams and eva are, are doing these days it's not it's not a proper rupert console so you know th- that pandered to his ego and mm. that's what sort of sucked him in and as i say it, it was a misadventure and i have to confess that having sold soundcraft i I couldn't compete with soundcraft i wasn't allowed to do that i had no desire to either Mm. but the idea of getting into large consoles which i was allowed to do by Harmon, to whom i'd sold uh, soundcraft appealed to me and yeah it, it just pandered to my ego as well you know building big consoles is kind of exciting I can understand, you know, people who decide to build a, an old school steam engine, like a railway <laughs> engine, as uh, somebody recently did. I think it took them about twenty years, but they built something that was Be- you know, completely obsolete <laughs> because the challenge is there. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> but the thing was, when we were doing it, we didn't realise that we were building something that was obsolete. I mean, it was obsolete technologically. The market was about to go through a huge technology revolution and combined with an economic change that was happening in the record industry around the end of the 80s. There was a a general recession in the global economy, but the recording industry was suffering its own recession too. So people weren't buying consoles anymore like they had been. Um, Studios weren't being built. I think in the heyday Neve and SSL between them were producing something like 400 consoles a year and that market declined to perhaps 100 and would have been smaller still 
if um, in particular Siemens, who owned Neve at the time, were financing the sale of a lot of the Neve VR consoles. And, you know, that kept them going for a while. A lot of those contracts failed, you know, because they they were selling consoles, you know, with pay nothing for a year, and then the year would be up and the studios couldn't afford to make the payments. So Uh, lots of deals went wrong that way. So it was very difficult for us to compete in a market where Neve were trying to take the market and SSL were fighting back and nobody was particularly making money, I don't suppose, during that period. I think Mm. SSL survived it best. I mean, Neve got effectively shut down in Cambridge and moved to Burnley to be merged into AMS, where it still is. I sort of came of age when it was probably late late 90s when um, I was studying music technology at school and playing around with eight-track recorders. And I thought, wow, this would be a great job to go into if I could do this. I left school and it just seemed that everyone was shutting down. Everyone was moving to their bedrooms. Yeah. Well, during the 90s, you know, the first revolution, if you like, was the ADAT revolution, which enabled the bedroom studio to prosper. People buying ADATs and little mixes from Soundcraft and Mackie to make up the studio. And then... That only lasted probably five years before the digital audio workstation came along. And at one time, there must have been something like 20 different companies dabbling in that business before Digidesign became the, the leader, if you like, became the one that, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that took the lead in the market with Pro Tools. And that changed everything. So um, the big digital multi-tracks that people had been buying for a quarter of a million quid started to lose their value very rapidly. The big consoles, same thing happened. You know, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It took probably 10 years start to finish. But by the end of the 90s, the market had changed out of all recognition. You know, we had, once we stopped trying to produce consoles, or actually it wasn't a problem producing them, it was selling them that was the problem. Um, once, we'd, <laughs> once we stopped selling consoles, we concentrated on analog outboard for a few years, starting with the Red Range. That was the product line that transformed our fortunes in the, in the outboard market. And then we mm-hmm. produced a couple of other ranges in analog, the... Um, the green range, which was controversial in terms of its appearance, and then uh, the platinum range, which was, and each one was it's half rare the, as hen's teeth. The green range. Well, we produced enough of them that uh, they, they must have <laughs> must have ended up somewhere. And at the end, we could hardly, hardly give them away. Funnily enough, it was uh, you know we produced a lot using external contractors, but um, the market wanted outboard gear cheaper and cheaper so the the green range was half the price of the red range roughly speaking and was quickly deemed too expensive an average sort of something around a thousand pounds for a one new module we had five different models with different configurations of mic pre's and eq's and so on and a channel strip which had one of everything um and um, what did we call it? Uh, voice box, I think. 
which was a vocal-oriented channel strip, unlike pre-EQ and compression. But that was the best seller of all of the Green Rangers. Then we came out with the Platinum Range, which was roughly half again, around the £500 mark. And that did quite well. Um, So we were making steady progress and sort of digging ourselves out of an economic hole, but carrying quite a lot of debt. And middle of the 90s, I met the guy at Digidesign who was responsible for their third-party developer program. And he uh, asked me if we'd like to do a Focusrite plugin for Pro Tools. And I said, yes, what's a plugin? Um, and that's, <laughs> that's how he, I mean, he remembers it that way. I only remember it because he's told me so many times since. That, uh, <laughs> uh, he was very impressed by my reaction that was, yes, now what's a plugin? So he explained what a plugin <laughs> was. And I said, well, we don't actually have the skills to do that, but why don't you do it? So uh, one of their engineers produced the Focusrite plugin, the D2, the EQ plugin, and the D3, which was the Dynamics plugin. And it was a joint effort in that you know, we suggested, I say we, it was Richard Salter, who was our then technical director, who came up with the idea of making the GUI, the graphical user interface, look like the hardware. And weirdly, nobody had thought of doing that before. So suddenly Pro Tools went from being a boring sort of black and white screen to having beautiful red anodized front panels represented uh, on on the plugin. Well, I remember that time because the standard plugins on Pro Tools were just a grey screen with some sliders on. Yeah. And it, it was, you know, maybe it sounded fine with the grey sliders, but it didn't really make you feel very inspired that you were doing something that might... It, it didn't feed back what was happening very well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the red hardware that the plugins were emulating had done incredibly well, not only for their audio performance, which was based very much on the original Rupert Neve era circuitry, but the the appearance of it, which was unique when we brought it out, having a, a red front panel with a curved front on it, um, nice silver knobs. I mean, people wanted to own it just for how, the way it looked. And we produced a blank panel, which was called a red zero. Although it was very simplistically uh, numbered. So the red one was a four-channel mic pre, and the red two was a two-channel EQ. Red three was a two-channel compressor, and the red four and five were a studio preamp and amplifier. The red six was a mic pre and compressor, as I recall. My memory's getting very hazy about all this stuff. Anyway, uh, it, it was the Red 2 and Red 3 that we emulated uh, in the plugins, which was the EQ and the compressor. And, of course, being a plugin, you could have as many channels, uh, instantiations, as they like to call them, uh, as as, uh, uh, as you like. So it was an enormous hit. And really, Dave Froker was the man at Digidesign. He credited the Focusrite plugins with really gaining 
acceptance for Pro Tools with the professional studio market, which uh, I thought was uh. possibly overstating it, but <laughs> it was a real accolade and it really did seem to make a big difference. And then we went on from that. Uh, yeah, I should explain the economic basis for the arrangement was that basically they licensed the Focusrite look and feel and sound and we worked with them on ensuring that that was the case that it actually sounded like a Focusrite EQ and a Focusrite compressor and so we enjoyed royalties like musicians do when they have a hit record so that was our first hit record um, <laughs> helped us you know build stronger foundations helped us pay off our debts and build strong financial foundations to take the business forward did did it also maybe get you in early to the idea that digital was going to be important um well yeah i think we knew that um i think what we didn't know was how to do it but with if you like the sponsorship of digital design we designed some hardware products for them and needed to hire the talent to do it. So the first hardware product we designed for them was the Control 24, which is a control surface for Pro Tools. They had one already, which was called Pro Control, and it was very expensive. And they wanted something that was uh, much more affordable to the average home studio the price it was launched at was just under $8,000, which was less than half the equivalent Pro Control. Like those prices mm-hmm. were maybe $20,000, something like that. So Control 24 was very successful. It didn't have audio in it except for mic pre's. It had Focusrite mic pre's, the output of which went sort of straight into the door. But the the control surface was just that. It was basically replacing the function of the mouse with faders and rotary controls and meters and so on. Very successful. We took an idea to them. I should mention that they were our distributor in the States. Um, they had become that in the latter part of the 90s. So, you know, we had a, a sort of strong engagement with digital design at that point as they were distributing Focusrite. And we took an idea to them. Rob Jenkins was the head of product development by that time. And he had an idea for what we now call an audio interface. I think it was a sound card at the time. You know, that's what people talked about, sound cards rather than audio interfaces. And he had an idea for a two-channel, two-in, two-out audio interface for not just Pro Tools, but for for any door that was out there, and showed the concept to Dave Froker, who said, oh, yes, we've been thinking about something just like this for an entry-level Pro Tools system. And he persuaded us to be exclusive to Pro Tools, so it was sort of part of their closed system that was the case in those Mm -hmm. days. So you could only use Pro Tools with Pro Tools hardware. So that kept out everybody else. I, I bought one purely for that reason back in the day. I was like, this is the way that I can get Pro Tools on my computer quite easily. Yeah. Well, Mbox was the product of that idea. We did two different industrial designs. One was a vertical module that you might remember, with the, yeah, the input level at the top, and uh, there was no EQ on it. There was no hardware like that, but... Uh, 
not dissimilar from the 2i2, the Focusrite 2i2 that I'm looking at right now, which um, is our current 2-in, two 2-out two uh, audio interface. And when we were designing the M-Box, it was expected that DigiDesign would sell 1,000 a month. And by the time that came to uh, an end, about five years later, they were selling about 6,000 a month. So that was our second hit record, really, because, uh, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, everything we did with them worked really well financially for both parties, the plugins, the Control24, then the M-Box, uh, and we were on royalties for each of it. So we designed the thing, got it into production with outsourced manufacturing in China, and, yeah, it was a great success, so much so they decided that they wanted to design a, a sort of second generation of M-Box. But having bought M-Audio, they decided to do it without our help. And so that was the end of a beautiful relationship, really. Oh. But by that time, we had developed our first Sapphire Firewire audio interface. So, you know, we, we weren't sort of put out of business. It forced us to um, stand on our own feet, which was proved to be a very good thing. Mm-hmm. So what intrigues me is how you go about having a team that can build any analog piece of equipment and they go, right, this is a new area of the market where you're going to have this thing that interfaces with all sorts of computers and there's a software side to it. Did those specialist people exist and you had to headhunt them or was it a learning curve for the people who were already at the company? Or uh... I think it was a combination of the two from memory. That We had analog engineers who were you know, developing their digital chops, but then we hired people who'd been in other parts of the audio industry, notably Simon Jones, who uh, came from Soundcraft and is our chief technologist. I think, I can't remember his official title, but that's what he is, is... He was at one stage probably our sole digital designer, and we've obviously expanded over the years. But a very talented engineer, and he was responsible for... I can't remember exactly when he joined the company, but uh, quite early on in our digital era, shall we say. Mm. So with, with the success of sound cards and interfaces for computers, was that where the liquid channel came about? You thought, where else can we take this? Yeah, I think the liquid channel came about as a result of an engineer from Cambridge who had developed the what's called convolution technology for sampling the products that were to be emulated, and that included mic pre's and EQs. He didn't have the resources to really develop the product himself, so we licensed his technology for the liquid channel. So that was a a nice example of somebody, rather like when we took some ideas to DigiDesign, he brought his ideas to us and we licensed that technology, produced the liquid channel, which did very well for a period of time, and liquid mix, which was a derivative product of that technology as well. So we were paying him royalties, so what goes around comes around so, mm. yeah, they, uh, that that was a nice relationship that did very well for him for a period of time, probably 
produced his pension. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting, though, now that, that there's so many studios that are just based around the idea of having one good sound card and, and a collection of mics. But I do end up in a lot of places, a lot of musicians, a lot of producers who have a Focusrite sound card. And they might have a fancy mic preamp as well, and they might have some other bits of kit, but the core of the studio is the Focusrite sound card because they know they've got eight good pre's. And if all else fails, if they just need to take one thing out of the studio to go and record, they know that they've got the piece of kit that will do that. And equally, when the whole corona lockdown started, I had various people messaging me going, oh, I want to do some recording at home, what do I get? And they were recording the arches remotely. Yeah. And they show a picture of one of the, the actors recording in their front room with a little fort of duvets around them. And there's a 2i2 in the corner. Yeah, there's been a lot of, of that during the lockdown. A lot of, uh, I didn't know the arches uh, were using 2i2s. So I'm very pleased to hear that. My wife will be even more pleased to hear about it because she's the, the arches fan of the family. <laughs> yeah, Saturday Night Live, apparently, uh, all the talent on, on that TV show in the States were sent to I2s or solos to do there. And there was one sketch in which one of the characters was wearing the 2i2 box, you know, the cardboard box that it arrived in, on his head as a, uh, a makeshift mortarboard. They were doing a sketch about graduating in your bedroom during lockdown. <laughs> but, yeah, it's been an extraordinary period this lockdown where we've had everybody in the company working at home and globally we've got nearly 400 people that includes martin audio and, and adam audio as well but with everybody except for factory people working at home but our sales have taken a big upturn not that they weren't bad before but you know we, we've been stretched to meet the demand and the, the factory that we work with in China to produce them has done an amazing job. I suppose one of the other things I should bring up as well is, of course, there's a couple of sister companies that you've picked up on the way. There's Novation, which maybe because they were manufacturing instruments, was that a slightly new area for you to venture into? Yeah, Novation was a local business to us. Uh, it was a one of the pioneering British synthesizer companies, of which there were a handful in the 70s and 80s. And uh, we bought it in 2004, just around the same time that Digi Design bought M Audio, I mean, literally within a month of each other. We were looking to build out our product lines, and clearly everything was disappearing into the computer with all the plugins that were being offered and so what you know what can we do that's not in the computer that's not software and keyboards and synths and controller keyboards was a uh, one thing and speakers and microphones were at the other end as it were so um, we always had a bit of an ambition to buy a microphone company which we haven't yet and a speaker company and we uh, bought two of those last year, Martin <laughs> Martin Audio for the a big one and a small speaker. Yeah, well, Martin Audio for the uh, for the live and install market, and Adam Audio for the studio. So yeah, that was quite a, a big step for us last year. 
paid real money for those businesses. Whereas with Novation, the company was a bit like Focusrite when I bought it. Uh, it was broke. It was out of business and or going out of business. Mm-hmm. So it didn't cost a lot to buy, but cost quite a bit to invest in to get it turned around and really cooking. You know? mm. But it's it's worked well, and we've evolved the business as certain opportunities arose, notably our partnership with Ableton, the, the Launchpad product line for Ableton Live has been very successful under the Novation brand. So I described Novation as our... Uh, music creation brand and and focus writers are audio and recording brand so they each have their place you know sometimes people say why why do you have two brands why do you just have the one you know i said well novation's recognized for certain kinds of thing and focus rights recognized for a different kind of thing mm-hmm. it's in fact two brands but one company it's under the same roof uh but yeah but specialized teams do, do they get to share the knowledge sometimes if, if someone goes oh we really want to do something with this piece of technology ah bob upstairs knows what to do with that speak to him well yeah we certainly do have technology crossover and you know people move between departments so yeah that definitely does happen but it's interesting many years ago around almost around the time of the uh, the mbox we we produced an audio interface under the novation brand and it wasn't very successful uh, because people weren't looking. Uh, you know, people weren't looking to Novation for an audio interface, and it's actually yes. a really good. It's a really good product. One of the other things that that I thought of was there's various brands that you, you've gained Novation and Adam and Martin. Were there ones that got away? <laughs> were, were there ones that you wanted that didn't work out, or have you got the ones that you wanted, as it were? Oh well, we're always looking, and in the last couple of years, we've actually got somebody whose total job is looking at opportunities, and we certainly you know, have looked at many, many more businesses than we've bought. We've only bought mm. two, and that's last year. There's some little ones, you know, sort of one-man band type of businesses, where you know there's a bit of technology that we really like. And so we hire the guy and buy his technology. And I call that more of a recruitment than a real M and A. You know, we don't yeah. we don't buy the business as a as a brand or as a going concern. But a bit like with the Liquid Channel, you know, a lot of really good stuff comes from one person, mm. and one person can find it very difficult to take their idea and commercialize it. But you know, if it's a great idea, we'll embrace it and embrace the developer and give him the opportunity to to succeed and prosper i'm told this is sort of anecdote that someone told me but i believe there's one part of a digico desk there is one guy who makes it and he likes working out of his shed and so if Uh you want that particular component for the desk it has to come from this guy's shed because that's where he works and I, I love that, you know, that there's always been characters in the music world, but I think in electronics, there's also lots of characters. And Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely. like the idea of them sort of trying to get him to come into the office. He's like, no, I'm staying in my shed. This is where I make stuff. Tell me what you want, and I'll put it in the post to you. 
Well, that's how Focus Right got started, was a lot of the people who had worked for Rupert Neve had disappeared into their own sheds, and mm. some of them came to work sort of, but because they were all sort of Cambridge-based or Newmarket-based, it wasn't practical to employ them long-term in Buckinghamshire, and I didn't want to set the company up 100 miles away from home. So, uh, yeah, we worked with a lot of engineers at that time, and, and since and currently we have people who work for us, you know, as far away as the States. We've, we've got uh, specialists, you know, who've been involved in our industry in some form or other and have a unique contribution to make. Mm. Uh, it's the nature of the, nature of the business. Looking right back to when the company started and initially when you went to see Rupert Neve and they were trying to sell the company or whether it was to get you on as an investor or something, was he looking to carry on the company and carry on being involved and did he just want to step away from it or was, was it a was it an, an amicable split? Well, actually, it was quite complicated because what I didn't know at the time was that he'd been talking to Nick Franks, who owned AMEC, uh, which is a console company in Manchester. And it appears after the event that they had made an agreement that Nick Franks would make a bid for the focus rights assets. And then AMEC would build the product and Rupert would be involved with that. So I came along not knowing this, and Rupert didn't tell me. And I bid more than AMEC did and uh, ended up buying the assets. Now, the liquidator, had, after accepting my offer, then had to phone me up and tell me that Rupert would not be available as a consultant after all, which is what he had indicated uh -huh. he, he would be prepared to be. And it was never on the cards that, you know, we'd restart the business as it was. Mm. I'd made it, you know, I'd made it clear that, that wasn't an option for me. So um, once we were up and running, he, he, you know, we had a gentleman's agreement that uh, he would help us get started by introducing us to various personnel that he had employed and in any other way that he could. And in fact, one of the things he did was to come out to New York with us for the public launch of the console that was installed at Electric Lady. And we had a sort of press event there and he was there and he was, so he, he, he played his part, but actually what he was intending to do and what he did was to become a consultant with AMEC and uh, AMEC produced his next console design. Over the years, my role has changed from being the entrepreneur and salesman being out on the road, building the distribution on a global basis, which I did for Soundcraft first of all, and then did again with, with Focusrite. And in terms of the technology, my role has always been to enable people who, who had the skills that I don't have. I was, you know, never the designer, but, um, you know, looking back, I think that what I've done successfully is to find the right people for the job and to enable them to meet their potential. And I'm very grateful to all of them. There's been a lot of them. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, some key players over the years. I mean, Graham Blythe at Soundcraft, 
Rob Jenkins at Focusrite and uh, Simon Jones, who I mentioned as well, who is, you know, Rob, Rob was more in the foreground and uh, Simon's always been, he's actually one of the guys who, who prefers to work from home. Um, so he, in that sense, he's been less visible, but he's played an incredibly important part uh, to our business. It's interesting that when I meet people who are successful in building a business, they, they have an eye for putting the right people together. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't do it all yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank Phil for speaking to me about his lifetime in audio. It's fair to say that in each stage of his career, he has had an impact on where we find live and studio sound today. Please join me for another episode about significant moments in live sound. And don't forget to like, subscribe and share. A History of Live Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow, executive producer at Spare Women, and is a bandwidth production.